0: Today we will return to our series in Chronicles, picking up at 2 Chronicles chapter 1. We, we pick up the chronicler's account right where 1 Chronicles left us. You might remember that David has just passed away and Solomon, his son, has been made king in his place. So all of the central concerns that we, we saw in 1 Chronicles are still with us are carried over, you'll remember that this account is being written specifically to the post-exilic community of Israel that has just come back from exile in Babylon. They've struggled to rebuild the temple after it's been destroyed, albeit a smaller, less grand temple. They have enemies on all sides. They're struggling to put Jerusalem back together again. They have no king. They're feeling weak and powerless and small downtrodden all that they have is hope and chronicles recounts israel's history with a specific eye to the king and to the temple showing how those historical figures are meant to point the eyes of the israelites toward their hope toward the promises in god that he still intends to keep promises that centered around the messiah Through 1 Chronicles, we enjoyed watching as David pointed us to Christ. What David showed a king of Israel needed to be. What he must do. What character he needed to have. But David, of course, is a fallen man like us. He was a shadow. A shadow coming before Jesus. Entering the room before Jesus arrived. Not yet the full, perfect thing. This hope for a greater David was rooted in the promise that was made to David when he was eager to build a house for God, to build the temple. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 7 to 14. 1 Chronicles 17, verses 7 to 14. When David desires to build the temple, God says to David through Nathan, Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will subdue all your enemies moreover I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." This is the promise that God made to David. Now by the time we get to the post-exilic Israelite community, many sons of David, many descendants of David have come and gone. And as we'll three, see throughout Second Chronicles, each of them is going to help to give us a better picture of what the coming Messiah, the coming son of David will be like. Some will be good kings, giving us an image of what the Messiah will be. Some of, us, some of them will be wicked kings, giving us a picture of what the Messiah will not be, what he cannot be. So this question of what it means to be a son of David, to be an inheritor of David's kingship, is with us as we walk through 2 Chronicles. It's important as we consider the kings of Judah we will meet along the way. Now, of course... The first one to whom this promise was passed on from David, the one who David would have first thought of when he heard this promise from God, would be his direct son, the one who would be king after him, and that is Solomon. We see in 1 Chronicles 22 that David passes on this promise to Solomon and charges him to build the temple. First Chronicles 22, verses 7-13. to 13. David said to Solomon, "'My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. "'But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "'You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. "'You shall not build a house to my name, "'because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. "'Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. "'I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, "'for his name shall be Solomon, "'and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days.'" He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous, fear not do not be dismayed. So David passes on God's promise to Solomon. He tells Solomon what he must do, what it is necessary to do it, if he is to rule God's people faithfully according to the promise, if he's to build God's temple as God promised David he would. Solomon must be wise, wise according to God's law, observe God's statutes. So Solomon goes to the throne He ascends to the throne with this charge from David, from God. Solomon knows what it means for him to be the son of David, according to God's promise. Now, as we turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, we see Solomon early in his reign, deeply concerned with what it means for him to be the son of David, through whom these promises can come about. So let's turn to our text this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 1. We'll read it in its entirety. Second Chronicles chapter one, Solomon the son of David established himself in his kingdom and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in Israel, to the heads of fathers' houses and Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from kiriath Jerem to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours which is so great? God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honors, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall be the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, and before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed for the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders would buy them from Q for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Likewise, through them, these were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Our passage this morning starts with a summary of Solomon's reign in verse 1. And then we see through this chapter how God keeps and honors his promises to David concerning David's son establishing him and honoring him, and how Solomon himself is concerned to honor God's promises to David. The chronicler does the same thing for Solomon that we saw him do throughout the reign of David. He removes certain details from the account so that we can keep our eye clearly on the key themes that he wants to show. In the account of Solomon that we see in 1 Kings, we're introduced to him through a long Uh, drawn out episode where he is contending for the throne with his brother Adonijah and then where Solomon carries out requests that David has made on his deathbed but the chronicler doesn't want to distract us he sums up all of this and says Solomon's reign was established but the first act of Solomon's reign that the chronicler wants us to see is the action upon which Solomon desired his reign would be founded the gathering of all the people and taking them to the tabernacle at Gibeon, where he sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. The chronicler honors Solomon's own intention in these sacrifices by giving us this episode first, because these sacrifices are meant to characterize and undergird Solomon's leadership, his kingship. Here, Solomon displays for Israel a commitment to God's law and a total dependence on God as their king. That's our first point this morning. Solomon founds his rule on a dependence of God and a love for his law. This event at Gibeon really shows Solomon heeding David's charge. David had said to Solomon, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. These burnt offerings seek God on behalf of Solomon, on behalf of the people. They are a cry of need. Offering up all that can be offered to show that there is nothing that Israel needs. That its king needs so much as the Lord to be with them. Solomon is declaring before Israel that he will be an utter failure as a king apart from God. These thousand burnt offerings are not a mechanical rote ritual. It's an extravagant declaration, like when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. It's full of affection for God. It's a costly sacrifice, like a young man saving up to buy his beloved a diamond ring. Solomon is not just keeping the rules. He is faithful to God and dependent on God, and he loves God. This relationship of obedience, dependence, affection, is the relationship of a son to a father. It's Solomon's side of God's promise to David. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. All Israel gets to witness this and is meant to see that this is true for them too. They must depend on God for everything. Their relationship with God should be characterized by faithfulness, dependence, even delight in God. We see this relationship between Solomon and God all the more when, Solomon, when God then comes to Solomon that night and responds to his sacrifices by saying to him, ask what I shall give you. Ask me, Solomon, for anything that you should want. Solomon has sought God and God has responded. And in Solomon's response, we see revealed the heart that we already saw in these sacrifices. First Solomon says to God, who who can govern this people of yours who are so great? Solomon has a humble view of himself before God. He doesn't see himself as king because of his merit or because he has a right to it. He is a guardian appointed by the true ruler of Israel, by God. Israel is God's people, not Solomon's people. And he feels his own unworthiness and weakness to govern anyone, let alone the people of God. The account in Kings gives us a longer account of this request. And in Kings, Solomon says to God, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. So we hear from Solomon what his sacrifices have already expressed. If he can rule God's people well, it will only be through the grace of God. It's out of this humility this dependence, this heart of sonship that Solomon makes to God his famous request. Solomon says, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great. God is pleased with Solomon's request. Now, typically when we think of God's pleasure in Solomon here, we we believe God is pleased because Solomon has chosen a better treasure, because wisdom is better than gold and power. And this is definitely true, we see this in many places. Proverbs will say how much better to get is wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. But God's pleasure in Solomon's request here is not just that he has discerned what is the greatest treasure. God is pleased with Solomon for choosing wisdom because of his reasoning, because of why Solomon wants to be wise. And that's our second point this morning, that Solomon desired what would make him the best servant of God and shepherd of his people. Remember when David charged Solomon to build the temple, to rule over the people, when he passed on the promises that God had given to him, he told Solomon, Solomon, you must seek discretion and wisdom and understanding from God. That is the only way you will be able to build the temple, to rule Israel well. So then Solomon here, when he makes his request to God, is faithful to ask what his father taught him to ask for. Because he desires to keep God's promises to David. Because he wants what will help him to rule God's people well. Those other treasures that Solomon could have requested, gold, silver, the life of his enemies, long life, would have primarily benefited himself. But Solomon asks out of humility for what would best help him to govern Israel and rule in faithfulness to God. He says that his desire in this request is that God would let his word to David be fulfilled. That's what Solomon wants to see in asking for wisdom. He wants to know how to govern wisely for the sake of God's glory and to be able to honor the charge that Solomon has from God through David to build the temple. Our author has reminded us as Solomon goes to Gibeon that the ark is no longer there. It's in Jerusalem waiting for the temple to house it. So as Solomon's making his sacrifices in the presence of the people, he can see before his eyes what is needed from him as a king. He sees his people before him who need him to govern well. He sees that the ark is not there, that it is waiting for the temple to be built. And so this is his focus that night as he asks God for wisdom. God is pleased with Solomon's heart in making this request. He's pleased by Solomon's dependence, his humility. And he responds not only by granting Solomon with the wisdom that he desires, but with all the glorious gifts that he could have asked for. This is our third point this morning. In response to Solomon's dependence and humility, God establishes and honors Solomon. We see this in God's reply to Solomon. Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. Because Solomon chose to serve and honor God, And to serve his people rather than honor himself, God himself will honor Solomon. God will lift him up beyond what Solomon could have even asked for, greater than any king that was before him, more glory than Solomon could have imagined. Solomon has come to God as a faithful son, and God responds as a generous father. We see this realized in the final paragraph of our chapter which gives us a quick summary of the great wealth that comes into Israel in the time of Solomon. Chariots, horsemen, gold and silver as common as stone. Fruitful trade, imports and exports. What we saw in verse one is shown to have come about. The Lord was with Solomon and made him exceedingly great. We see the promise to David being honored. As God told David, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. God thus confirms that Solomon will be able to honor the promises God has made to David. God is not only blessing Solomon, but he's supplying everything that he needs to build the temple, gold and silver in abundance. Israel is enjoying the peace and prosperity through which the house of God can be undertaken. As much as David is Israel's model king, the one who best prefigures the coming Messiah, it's during the reign of Solomon that we see Israel at its peak. Everything David accomplished, his victories and conquests, participate along with the wise rule of Solomon to produce this period of prosperity and productivity that the readers of Chronicles likely would have looked back on with longing. Longing for a day when this glory of the days of Solomon could somehow be restored. Yet most of us know, without going into too much detail of what is to come, that these golden days in Israel were over sooner than many people likely expected they would be. Because Solomon couldn't hold on to this humility and dependence and singular affection for God as a father which characterized his early reign. This isn't to say that Solomon somehow caused God's promises to David to fail. God maintained David's line after Solomon. He guarded his promise. He was more faithful to Solomon than Solomon was to him. But looking at Solomon, the promise to David seems to be left wanting. Wanting a full and final fulfillment. God's people are left with longing Could there not be a son of David who could exemplify these qualities of the young Solomon but without wavering? Who could perfectly live up to and honor the promise all the days of his life? A king who would have been worthy to be treated as a son of God, worthy of such glory and honor that those who enjoy his rule could rest peacefully and in stability for generations. By the time Chronicles was written, That longing for a greater son of David was the great focus of God's people. And so Solomon, like David, points us to the greater son of David that was coming after him, who would truly live up to this relationship of being a son of God, because he really would be the only begotten son of God. This is our fourth point this morning. Christ demonstrated perfect humility and faithfulness for which he will be eternally glorified and his kingdom eternally established. It wasn't long ago that we heard a message on the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem and is hailed as the son of David. And you'll remember that Jesus coming into the city on a donkey really brought into focus the questions surrounding Jesus during his whole ministry. What it would mean for him to be the son of David. What did it mean for him to be the Messiah, to be king? What would he be like? Many people were confused about what it meant for Jesus to be this humble servant Messiah. And yet much of this reality of Jesus' reign was pointed to by Solomon, who is in many ways the standard for the glory and splendor and majesty of Israel's past kings. The king of God's people, would not be a man primarily concerned with getting what he desired for himself. He would see himself as a man appointed by God to shepherd and guide God's people. A humble king, totally devoted to God. Humble enough to reject everything he could seek for himself for the sake of leading God's people wisely and faithfully and establishing a dwelling place of God with man. This heart which Solomon gave Israel a glimpse of, Jesus fully reveals for us. This was the heart that Jesus had long before the triumphal entry, even before he came to earth. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us what it meant for Jesus to come among us at all. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was not just treated as God's son. He was God's son. The second person of the Trinity, co-eternal and equal with the Father and the Spirit. Since before creation, he was there with them, enjoying all the glory that he deserves. But Jesus left his position of glory to come among us, taking the form of a servant. The word became flesh. God took on humanity. He did this because he had a charge from God, his father. He had a people entrusted to him. Solomon's choice to be a faithful king by seeking wisdom rather than gold or power is just a hint In Jesus giving up the glories of heaven so that he might rescue God's people and reconcile them to God. Jesus lived among us as a faithful servant of God's people. We saw that when he washed his disciples' feet. The king humbles himself to serve those he is given charge over. And when Peter tries to object, Jesus tells him that this service is necessary for his own sake. It is through this humble service that Jesus will shepherd and save his people. Washing the disciples' feet points to Jesus' ultimate cleansing act of humble service, the climax of his selflessness, shepherding his people when he went to die on the cross. If Jesus had not humbled himself, if he had chosen what he deserved from God, what he had every right to claim, rather than to come among us and be humiliated, tortured, and killed, we would have been left estranged from God, dead in our sins, fixed on the road to hell. Just as Solomon demonstrated his humility and founded his rule on an extravagant sacrifice, Jesus' reign was established and his humility magnified in the greatest sacrifice the world has ever seen the shedding of his own blood. God himself, the glorious creator of the universe, perfect God and man, totally satisfying the wrath of God by dying in the place that we deserved to hang. By this ultimate act of humble service, Jesus could totally cleanse Peter and you, and me, and all who trust in him, making us new, making us his own people. Christ promised the Father he was not going to lose a single one that had been entrusted to him. None would be taken from his hand. All who are his can be fully assured that just as surely as they were justified by his sacrifice, they will be eternally saved from the wrath of God. So, Solomon's faithfulness and wisdom in leading Israel is just a taste of the faithfulness of Christ to guard and lead his people in perfect wisdom and righteousness. Solomon's charge from God was just a shadow of what Jesus accomplished. Solomon's charge was to lead Israel faithfully to build a temple, a house for God among them. Jesus, by his humiliation and his resurrection, gathered a far-flung people from all corners of the earth and made them into a house for God, his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And through him, we have a promise that we will dwell secure with God in his kingdom forever and ever. God's response to Solomon's humility and faithfulness was to give him even more glory than Solomon had passed over. And in the same way, God responds to Jesus' great humility and sacrifice as a father who is delighted with his son, giving Jesus all the glory and majesty that he deserves. Looking again at Philippians 2, Paul says how God responds to the great humility of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We saw in Second Chronicles that all Israel enjoyed and was able to share in not only the wisdom and the faithfulness of their king, but the glory and the secure reign of their king that he had from God. And so too do we look forward to an eternal kingdom the kingdom of our glorified Savior, Jesus, whom the Father raised from the dead and seated at his right hand. We even look forward through him to our own glorification, along with the renewal of all creation in a kingdom where righteousness dwells. And while Solomon's faithfulness wavered and his glory faded, Christ's faithfulness to his Father and his people will never waver. And his kingdom will never fade. The glory that Jesus receives when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord, that glory will never diminish. And we ourselves will live as kings and queens, we who deserved nothing from God but death and hell, because our great king died for us. And our greatest joy will be him who loved us so who is so perfectly faithful, when no one else could be, who deserved nothing less, who does deserve nothing less than the glory of all the universe. Is Jesus your king? We live in an age, and we know that our hearts show us that we naturally bristle at authority. We hate the notion that anyone has a claim over us. We are inclined to distrust those in positions over us, to question their motives. Are our governors, our church leaders, our parents, anyone in authority, are they serving us or are they serving themselves? A part of this distrust comes from our desire to be led only by ourselves and our own pleasures. We want to be kings and queens in our own right. We're desperate for autonomy. We want to be lords over our own lives, beholden to no one. No one is going to tell us what we have to do. We don't want to submit to God. We hate the idea that he has a holy, righteous law that makes a claim on us that we should follow and obey. Have you seen this impulse in your own heart? Maybe you've never articulated it as the desire to be a king or queen. My daughter Ellie definitely has but you do feel entitled to control your own life, to serve yourself, to hold on to your pride, to serve your pride and your pleasure. Can I ask you, are you doing a better job for yourself than you see here that Christ has done for his people? Have you not already seen the first cracks, the first signs of anxiety and agony that come from trying to serve yourself, feeding your pleasures and your passions, which have themselves become the true Lord's over you. That pain that your own pleasure causes, that anxiety, that meaninglessness in everything that you're doing, it's just the first pangs of the destruction that all of your pride and pleasure are leading you to. Friend, look at Jesus. Look at the true rightful king of the universe who deserves to rule over all of us and everything he made. He gave up everything he deserved to serve and save his people. He is able and deserves to be the faithful, loving Lord of all, of all who give up their failed attempt to rule their own lives and who trust in him. He went to the cross To be the savior and king of all who'd repent and believe. Believe in his death and resurrection. Believe in the punishment that your pride and your pleasure seeking deserves. He was treated as an enemy as we deserve to be treated by God. So that we could have a good king and be a part of his good kingdom. He is seated on his throne even now, yet to be revealed when God's time has come. And he loves his people dearly. He will never change. He will never be less perfect. He won't be any less of a good king tomorrow. Never less concerned for you. Never less committed to the charge from the father he has to govern his people well and wisely. So surrender your hollow crown and bend your knee to Jesus, the King who washed his disciples' feet, who cleanses us and renews us and offers us an eternal place in his kingdom, even sharing in his glory forever. Set down your own search for glory in this world and delight in, submit to, humble yourself before Jesus. Repent and believe and cast yourself on the only good and true Savior and King. And then if you have repented and believed, if you are glad to call him King, then let us live in this wonderful truth. Let's apply it the way Paul does, by recognizing that our flesh can still have this impulse to have no Lord over us but ourselves. Our hearts try and dethrone Christ when we create excuses for why we, had a right to sin against him, and others didn't. Or when we don't treat his church like fellow citizens, like our family, when we hate to be inconvenienced or imposed upon by our brothers and sisters, when we reject their role in correcting our sin and calling us to repentance, when we would prefer to remain begrudged or comfortably estranged from members of the church who we have disagreed with, At those times, brothers and sisters, remember that Jesus' humility took us from being doomed sinners to become children of God. And just as that is our salvation, it is given as an example to us. As he washed his disciples' feet, so we humble ourselves even to wash each other's feet. This is the character the Spirit is conforming us to. Keep your eyes on Jesus the Creator and King. When Job encountered the presence of God, he shut his mouth, he had no excuse before, the glory of God. And Jesus, that glorious God, is the one who gave up all of his glories for the love of us and to save us. Let us walk in humility and delight ourselves in our good and humble King.